building robots that learn from trial and error. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Dr. Dimitri Berenson, Associate Professor in the Electrical Engineering Computer Science and Robotics Institute in the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan. Welcome, Dr. Berenson. Thank you, it's great to be here. Give us a brief summary of your background related to robotics. Yeah, so I've been uh, involved in robotics ever since uh, I graduated from undergrad, even during undergrad. Uh, I've been working on all kinds of different robots, from legged robots to uh, helicopters to robot arms to humanoid robots. Um, and uh, my kind of area of expertise is in motion planning and uh, learning for uh, robotics and motion planning. Uh, so I create algorithms that enable robots to do tasks like uh, cleaning up a table, uh, doing the laundry, uh, and even uh, exploring some tasks in uh, healthcare, surgical robotics, and things like that. Let's talk about building robots that learn from trial and error. What are the building blocks of such a system? Well, there are a lot of different systems out there for doing this, um, but one mode that's become really popular recently is to use deep learning. Uh, so you use neural networks with uh, many hidden layers uh, to process usually some high dimensional data uh, like images or point clouds. Uh, and that data is then turned into uh, motor commands for the robot. So this is one very popular paradigm that's been uh, developed recently. And it's only become possible because we've had uh, a huge amount of computation that we can throw at the problem. But unfortunately, this method is uh, somewhat limited because uh, it's very task specific. So you learn, uh, let's say, a way to uh, take in images and produce motor commands for, uh, let's say, cleaning up a table, uh, which is already pretty hard. Um, but uh, it turns out if you want to do a slightly different task, like maybe uh, you clean up a cupboard uh, where the lighting conditions are different or the kinds of objects you're encountering are a little bit different. Well, in that case, it's actually very difficult to transfer any of what you've learned uh, from cleaning up a table to the cupboard. Now, maybe there's a little bit that can transfer, but usually you're going to require a whole new set of training data. You're going to have to retune your architecture which is the structure of those uh, deep uh, networks. And um, uh, basically, you're going to have to uh, do a lot of engineering work to enable that new application. So while um, these kinds of learning methods are actually very impressive and a great development for the field, there's still actually a long way to go before we uh, are able to fluently understand um, what we can actually learn that's transferable across a broad range of tasks. tasks. What role does machine vision play in all this? So uh, machine vision is very important. And uh, in the robotics world, um, we uh, traditionally built systems that took in some uh, estimate of the robot state and the state of the environment, uh, which came from a machine vision system. So you would have algorithms, uh, for instance, implemented in OpenCV or other vision frameworks that uh, 
uh, could, let's say, track features in a scene uh, so that the robot could estimate its location relative to those features. Um, you could have machine vision that recognized objects. So for instance, if I'm uh, cleaning up the cups from the table, I want to be able to recognize what's a cup and what's a, a plate and what's a fork and so on. So that was the traditional system where um, we're using these uh, kind of pre-made machine vision algorithms. Maybe we're training them on a small data set, uh, and then we are able to recognize objects or recognize features in the scene. And then we can go on and, and use those in um, uh, motion planning, localization, all sorts of different things we want to do in robotics. But now the paradigm has changed somewhat, and people are seeing that um, kind of isolating vision uh, from the rest of the system completely uh, is maybe not the right way to go. Maybe some contexts you can do that, but in other contexts, the actual states that you want to estimate for what's going on in the world are intimately tied with what you're trying to do in the world. So um, you can't kind of decouple these systems and say, well, you make a perception system and I make a, um, a motion planning system or a, a localization system. Now, that's actually pretty advanced work to actually do it together. And a lot of these neural network approaches are, are trying to do this kind of stuff together. I'm actually of the opinion that what we need is something in the middle. We don't uh, want to completely isolate our perception from our uh, application that we're using it for, but nor do we want to kind of learn everything at the same time, because then we're kind of starting from scratch. It's like a new baby being born and it's got to figure out how to move its body and, you know, how to use its eyes every time it wants to do something, right? That's not feasible. So I think there are common perception things that we can learn and common perceptual features that we can extract from the scene, but we may need to do another extra layer of learning a little bit after that so that we extract from that large set of features what's actually relevant for the task that we want to do. What goes into designing the trials and errors to create a robot that can actually perform a wide variety of situations? Yeah, so, um, a lot of trial and error these days is done in simulation. Uh, so the idea is that you have a simulator, which is just you know a program that you run on your computer that simulates, uh, let's say, physics. Uh, again, we're talking about a robotics context here. So we have a physics simulator, and that simulator has uh, been kind of uh, set up with a certain model of the world. So imagine again cleaning up a table, right? Maybe I create a table in simulation and I put some cups and plates and forks on it, right? And um, given the simulator's physics, I can figure out what happens if the robot, let's say, pushes one of the cups or it picks up a plate, right? Maybe that plate will knock over a fork. Maybe it'll knock over a cup. Maybe nothing will happen except uh, the plate moves, right? So the simulator can basically tell us what the results of our actions are. So once I know that, then I can try many, many different actions in simulation. I can run this in parallel because I can run multiple copies of the simulator, uh, maybe in different worlds, uh, meaning that they have different uh, physics involving you know, different kinds of friction, different kinds of masses uh, for the objects and so on. Um, and so I can do all of these different runs 
uh, in parallel, and I can get an estimate of how robust a given action is to changes in my world, right? And uh, that can allow me to search for actions which are much more robust. So that's kind of uh, the, the crux of using trial and error. But there's a layer on top of that, which is basically uh, looking at how do we uh, perceive the state of the environment in simulation, and then come up with the best action to do uh, using, again, a lot of these deep learning methods. You could also do it with more traditional methods. Um, and uh, that layer is basically synthesizing the actions to test. It's looking at what the result of the action is, and it's using that as feedback to then improve its model for how to uh, perceive and how to act. Um, so that's the simulation side of the story. But of course, making a robot that only works in simulation is not that exciting, right? We want robots to do things in the real world. So what that means uh, uh, to accomplish that, what we need to do uh, is actually transfer what we've learned from simulation to the real world. This is called sim to real in the uh, robot learning community. Uh, and um, in the real world, uh, we can gather some data and we can kind of refine our simulation models and fine tune them for the real world application. Now, what transferring from simulation to reality is actually uh, not a trivial thing because the physics inside the simulator and the way things look inside the simulator aren't the same as the real world. And so you always have what's called the reality gap. The reality gap is basically the difference between the simulation world and the real world. And uh, right now, there's a lot of research going on about how to best cross that reality gap by doing uh, different kinds of sim to real transfer methods. Dr. Dimitri Berenson, Associate Professor at the Electri Electrical Engineering Computer Science and Robotics Institute in the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan. If somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they want to find out more about this area of robotics, how can they do that? Uh, the best way is just to send me an email. So you can uh, find my website just by Googling my name, or you can just email me at uh, berenson at eecs.umich.edu. Sounds good. Thanks again for joining us. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.